Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to uh, Genesis chapter 5. Thanks, worship team. I'm always amazed at the remarkable level of um, gift and ability with our musicians here at Waterbrook and... um, just thank God that this uh, little church family that's seeking to love the Lord and love each other are um, just so blessed to be together and be ministered. So I just want to thank the worship team. And, uh, you know, Mike was just traveling all over the place. I don't even know where he was this week, but thanks, brother, for serving us and working hard so that we could sing together and worship together. So uh, as we uh, come into worship this morning and we study the Word of God, it's really important that we pray. And um, I do want you to um, do a little pausing before we um, study the Word today. I want you to pause and be honest. I want you just to have a little conversation with the Lord, and then I'm going to read the Scripture. Um, And ask yourself and talk to the Lord about where your focus has been. Because one of the the challenges that you and I face as brothers and sisters in Christ together, it's really easy for us to forget that we're on mission. Or, if we are on mission and we want to be a witness for Christ, one of the things that's easy for us to get discouraged about is the level of darkness in the world around us. Isn't that true? Now, you just read the news and you think about the challenges that are before us and in all of that we stop and we sometimes it's why the music has gone the way we've gone today that sometimes we begin wittingly or unwittingly to doubt that God is at work and that things that are happening like let me give you a little illustration just uh, think about the coronavirus and uh, the fear that is beginning to become global. And I want you to think that um, if you lose a biblical perspective on the purpose of God, anxiety can fill all of us. So my daughter Kathy um, on Thursday or something texted to say she was going to get fitted for her new mask. So I have a daughter who's on the front lines of, in the ER uh, where in a, in a, her neighborhood is, is Chinese, largely Chinese, where her hospital is, a large uh, city of ch- Chinese people coming in back. And near them, the first case of coronavirus was identified in Toronto. And so, you know, it's easy for your mind to go in the direction of what's wrong with the world and forget in the middle of this that God is moving unswervingly forward with the gospel. That the coronavirus, for us, in a world that is constant with death and disease, constant with corruption and callousness, in a world where that's going on, God is not up in heaven taking a break. He hasn't stepped aside, but He's actually sovereign at work to accomplish. And what we often forget is it's often in the darkest moments that the diamond becomes clear, right? The background, the black velvet cloth, the diamond shines most brightly. 
often in the darkness, it's there that people will begin to ask you, what's the reason for your hope? What's the reason for your hope? So would you pray? And just admit that maybe the darkness has creeped in, crept in. Maybe the news has fed your soul more than the good news. Maybe you fear the gods of this world when they're all false and there's only one God. So Spirit of God, um, the darkness creeps in easily. We can be slow and sluggish to believe the Bible. And yet, as Moses writes these words for a nation about to venture into a land of giants, a land that they turned back from, land of promise, uh, he speaks, dear God, about you. He wants them to see you. He wants them to trust you. But they're like us and we're like them. Oh, dear God, we don't trust you with little family squabbles. We don't trust you when things go wrong at work. We don't believe, dear God, that your kingdom marches forward when the government holds impeachment hearings or runs another election. We fear, dear God. We fret when we see international intrigue or disease or we sense the distance of our child from Jesus. Oh, dear God, help us. Help us right now to believe the Word of God over everything else. Your will over everything we feel. And so give us the eyes of faith, oh God. Help us to fight the good fight. In the reign of death, dear God, in the realm of death and sin, there is a kingdom that is here that will be an everlasting kingdom. There is one who is greater than it all. Take away, O oh God, our unbelief. Take away our trembling. O oh God, come and show us the unshakable hope of Jesus and cause us to rise up as a mighty army. O oh God, help us. We are your children. You are our great shepherd. Feed us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 5, we have a genealogy. You have read genealogies in the Bible, and sometimes when you've read genealogies, you've probably done what I've done, going, why? Right? We lack the history that some of the nations, often Eastern nations, but other nations of the world where they anchor their identity in their genealogies. We read them and think, okay, I'm trying to do my devotions. I'm in Genesis chapter 5. What good is this? If you read Genesis chapter 5, there is in this 
genealogy, a stream, a line, a repeated stanza that comes through that's not found normally in other genealogies. Those of you of older uh, probably have read the King James Version of uh, genealogies and you read so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so and you used to read that and go, what is a begat and what is it begot to do with my life? You know, as you read through it, but um, as you read through these genealogies, typically you see that it is the line, and in the Bible, the line of God's people, or often the line of God's Messiah coming, the coming of Christ. And as you read it, you think, here is God's line at work being unfolded. In Genesis 5, the unique thing about this genealogy is the sentences end with these words, and he died right you don't always read that in genealogies you hear birth isn't birth often good news and we rejoice in the birth of someone and we think here's a line and he was born and he was the father and he gave birth and then this father gave birth to this one and you see the line but in this line sometimes you see like Methuselah they lived a long time but when you read Genesis 5 you don't read this genealogy and go man they had a grand old time Right? Don't you think life is short? Aren't you tired of the news that you get regularly of people sick and struggling and battling from birth to the grave? And you read a, a text like Genesis 5 and the temptation is to look at Genesis 5 and the genealogy and go, wouldn't it be great to go back and live 969 years? Except when you read it, it was the dark ages in some way. It was a reign of death. And yet, the reason it's in your Bible is to prepare you and me for the reality that in the reign of death is the sovereign reign of God. And in the midst of the darkness is the unshakable hope of a God who has a purpose and a plan that cannot fail. So I, my prayer for you this morning is perspective. My prayer for you is encouraging. My prayer for you is correction. I want you to look at that spot right now that you have been in the darkness. Look at it and then look at it in light of the hope of God at work in you. You don't have to be strong. He's strong. These aren't easy days. These are dark days. But in the dark days, God is at work. And if we do not see that in Genesis 5, then we've missed the main thing. So listen to Genesis 5, and I will read a little bit of this and make my way through, and, or I'll read it through quickly, and I want you to begin to feel, sense the work and presence and worth of God. This is the book of the generations of Adam, and when God created man, he made him in the likeness of man, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Great news, folks. Seth, in replacement of Abel, a son through whom the promise would come. The days of Adam, verse 4 says, after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and other sons and daughter and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth's Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Kenan. Enosh had lived, and he fathered Kenan 800, after he had fathered Kenan 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he, see my Bible? I've circled something every Verse, it says, and he died. And not Andy died, sorry, Andy, just relax. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you were raised, that's right. I'll enunciate. And he <laughs> died. Actually, he did die and got better. He was raised from the dead by an electric shock, but we praise God for that. Verse 15, let's jump down to Mahalal, which means the Lord to be praised. When Mahalalal had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalal lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalal were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. Pause. Wait a second. You see a shift here? You're supposed to notice the shift. I'm supposed to notice the shift. Enoch walked with God and he fathered Methuselah 300, after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years, he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God had took him. I circled that too because it doesn't say, and he died, it says, and he was not because God took him. Isn't that mercy? That's mercy. Let's think about that. So when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he father, fathered Lamech, uh, Lamech, and Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech had lived, after he had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called him Noah. And then he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our works and from the painful toil of our hands. You see, when you read that, how was the 900 years of life for most of these guys? Exhausting. Wasn't 900 years of wait, this is great. It was 900 years of God help us. And when Noah comes along, he names him Noah which means rest, which sounds like the word for comfort or compassion. And he says, finally, God is going to deliver us from this cursed life. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, kind of the fullness of time when you hear the number. He lived 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
So what I want you to see this morning in this passage of Scripture is that stronger than the pain and sorrow of sin and death is the sovereign, gracious purpose and promise of God. Is that good news? That what we are being taught here in Genesis, and I just want you to think about this, Genesis is written to prepare the people to launch into a land that intimidated them. They died, his generation died in the wilderness because when they got to the land of promise, they came back with a report, Joshua and Caleb said what? We got God, God can take them. What did the rest say? They're big, it's too big for us, we can't go there. And so they were intimidated by the size of the giants in their land. Let me ask you, what are the giants in your life that are intimidating you from being fully engaged in the ministry that God has called you to? What is it that's in front of you that keeps you from following God in hope and faith? What he's doing in this section leading up to God's call of Abraham to leave everything because God's intention is to bless the nations through Abraham and his descendants. He is saying to them and pointing to them, imagine Moses writing this. In the next chapter, he's going to talk about giants in the land, the Nephilim. But in chapter 5, as he writes them, he says there's a dark time, but in the darkest times, you got to realize God had a people, God had a plan, God had a purpose, and God was at work. And so that he is lifting up their eyes, saying, do not set your eyes on your circumstances, set your eyes on your Savior, on the God who has called you. And so, go to the next one, got the God's mission requires... It's what God's mission requires, that God's people see God's world through God's word, no other word. So can I ask you to have that hermeneutical interpretation of your experience, the way you interpret life? Interpret life not on the terms of your sensory experience, your thinking, your emotions, Come back to the truth of the Word of God. Genesis 5 is bleak because he died and he died and he died and he died, right? It's bleak except for moments where you just hear, no, this is not the end of God's purpose. This is God resolved to accomplish His purpose despite the fall, the curse, the brokenness of humanity. This thrills my heart. This thrills my heart because the normal realm in which you live and I live is brokenness. And often I talk to you and you talk to me and we regularly are encountering people who are living in the Genesis 5 struggle, the long, dark days. And we sit and think to ourselves, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And you and I need to have our eyes lifted up and realize that there is never a time where God is not taking His foot off the pedal, that He's taking His foot off the pedal, His eye off the goal, His purpose unfolding in all of this. God is accomplishing His purpose. Sin is not sovereign. Death is not sovereign. He is Lord. And so this is why I like this quote from Hudson Taylor, which drove his mission. He says, there are three stages to every great work of God. First it's impossible, then it's difficult, then it's done. Isn't that great? 
It's impossible. Do you see the impossibility of your circumstances? He will never change. She will never turn around. This cannot get better. How much worse can it be? You see all of that? All of that is what? Very dangerous. Full and latent with unbelief. Because the answer is not in what is going on at the human realm. Our hope is not in one another. Our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is in God. And God If missionaries waited till it looked like it was possible, global missions would not happen. If reaching out to your family only happens at the moment you believe that your family is most responsive to you, when will it happen? No, it won't. What happens is when we see God, hope fills our lives. And when we see God at work unshakably in His promises in Jesus Christ, our foot goes on the gas pedal because He never took His off. He is building His church through Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we just have to let the vision of God get a hold of us. And that's my prayer this week. I'm here to be disruptive. Not asking you to change where you are. I'm asking you to change how you see where you are. Not asking you to make excuses. There are many good excuses for unbelief at a human level, and there are no good excuses when God is who God is and when God has promised to do what God has promised to do. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? So I want to walk you through the text and get your eyes on Moses writing about God in this passage of Scripture. Let it give you hope. You may not get the feel of the hope today, but I want you to get the fact of the hope. So that you can pray to God that you can feel the hope. The fact is more important than the feel this morning, folks. You can be tired a winter. You can be sluggish in your soul. You can be exhausted and dreading Monday back at work. Feel all of that. But the fact is, God will do what God has promised. That's what this text is about. So let me just take you into the text and show you God's vision. That's the first part. Notice how this genealogy begins. Where does it begin? Begins with God and creation. This is like Genesis 1 all over again, in a sense, in the first few verses. But in Genesis chapter 1, it's a genealogy. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it sounds like the creation story again, right? It said, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created and, the, and then when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered Seth. So we get that starting point. We get the creation kind of um, summed up in verses 1 and 2. So here's what I want you to think about this morning. Why does he begin this genealogy of death with the story of creation? And what he's doing right from the beginning is he's saying in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that when God made humanity, God blessed humanity. 
and you're not to let that float off. He's beginning by saying that from the beginning, he made man, male and female, men and women, he made us humanity, and as humanity, he blessed them. That's the dominant statement at the beginning of this genealogy, because if you read the rest of it, you don't feel the blessing, do you? Do you feel blessed all the time? The blessing here is the Word of God, and the Word of God has a greater say than our feelings about the way life's going. And and the way the Bible reads from the beginning to the end is that it is the agenda and the initiative, the sovereign decree and sovereign will of God that human beings would be blessed by Him. And the curse has not stopped the first And it will not be the final word. God will have the final word. From beginning to end, humanity will be blessed under God. And he will fill the whole earth with his glory. That's how the Bible reads. And that's what rescues you in the darkest moments. You must believe. You must believe. You must believe that God is going to fill the whole earth with His glory for the joy of all humanity, right? As He has created human beings, He is going to rescue and deliver a people and create a world that is rescued from death. So when you hear death, death is not the final say. Death is ruling for a moment, but God is reigning forever. Darkness may come. Sorrow may last for a night, but a shout of joy will come in the morning. The blessing of God at the beginning of Genesis is going to be realized despite the pathway to get there. So would you turn back to me, back to the blessing in Genesis 1? Let's just track back to what he's being said here. And then let me show you um, how this works itself in the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 1, when Adam and Eve are created, go to verse 26. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. Got that? When God blessed them, what did God say? This is important. As you think about sharing the gospel, this is important. When people stop and ask you the reason for the hope that you have in a world that seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, you need to answer the truth of the overarching narrative of the Bible. This is it. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that that moves on the earth. And so what he says is here, fill the earth. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that God's plan from the beginning was not to localize his people within the Garden of Eden? This is before the fall. The only thing that happened was they was a guard so they couldn't go back when they were removed. But what is God's purpose from day one? To fill the earth 
with his glory and to put his people and bless them that creation would cooperate with them that the world would resound with the savoring wonderful joy of the glory of God amongst all creatures as human beings reign and rule over all things isn't that a glorious picture that's a big responsibility in one sense and it's a beautiful opportunity God said I bless you. I have created you so that you might have joy and savor my goodness and go out and fill the earth and have dominion and rule over it in such a way that there is harmony and equity and justice from sea to shining sea. The American vision of justice for all is not originating in America. It existed long before this little project started, and it'll exist long after the project's over. Because the kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom is the kingdom that God established from the beginning, and it goes right to Genesis chapter 22 at the end when he says, and I will make all things new. This world made new transformed and transported marvelously into his glorious reign and realm. Isn't that what drives the Bible? So, you know, I have um, thought of times when people were up against it in the Bible. So take your Bible and go to Genesis 57. And you will be able to find, sorry, not Genesis. If you find Genesis 57, you got the wrong Bible. Um, Psalm 57. Psalm 57. This is one of my favorite texts. Okay, I should just stop saying that line. I love the Bible. There's, there's favorite texts all over this thing. So in Genesis, Genesis 57, oh, Psalm 57, not Genesis 57, Psalm 57 for me has been life transforming and vision shaping. It's one of the texts that shapes my life. It's David being chased by Saul. He's oppressed. He's hiding in a cave. He's got a motley crew of men, some of them who can go down to a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion. He's got a group of guys that were with him. He has the opportunity to kill Saul a couple of times. Remember that? He refuses to do it. Why? Right, because Saul was anointed by God, but David didn't want to see the kingdom that David could build. David wanted to see the kingdom that God was going to build. So listen to Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Some of you can pray this this morning. You can pray this prayer. You're stuck. It's dark. It's difficult. There's not a way out. Pray the prayer, but believe the promise. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in, my, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your ring, wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Is that a happy day? That's a hard place. I cry out to the God Most High, to God what? Who does what? Who fulfills His purpose for me he will send from heaven and save me he will put to shame him who tramples on me god will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness isn't that great news who's the savior the lord i don't want to save myself i could kill saul now if i kill saul now i got god to deal with 
But if I wait for the Lord, He'll deal with Saul and He'll deliver me. Is that good news? Isn't that good news? Wait for the Lord. Seek His face. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Anybody felt the sharp sword of somebody's tongue lately? Can people say nasty things about you? Can you be sitting there thinking, everybody's against me, I've been misrepresented? That's David, but listen to David's prayer in verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory where? Beware. Over all the earth. What's his vision? The glory of God being over all the earth, such that he doesn't take justice into his own hands. And he doesn't get paralyzed in the pain. He prays to God. Look at the very last verse of that psalm because he, he goes around and does it again. Verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be where? Above all, over all the earth. In the last couple of verses, he says, I will sing for you over all the nations. What's David's expectation? That all the nations will be under the glory of God. Isn't that a great vision back thousand years before the coming of Christ? David waiting on the Lord and restraining himself because he did not see the pain of his circumstances as something that needed immediate rectification by his cunning and by his power. He believed that the blessing of God from the beginning, that God would fill the earth and fill the nations with his glory for the good pleasure of God and to the joy of all peoples. That's what shaped him. Is that what's shaping you? Jonathan Edwards has got a many favorite, famous works. One of them is the end for which God created the world. And he's wrote, do you see the logic in this conclusion? And he's talking about God showing his glory over all things. He says, first, God's perfect qualities Oh, sorry, he's, he's tracking back um, why God created the world, so he's looking at creation. And he says, first, God's perfect qualities are excellent in themselves. So I'll just pause and explain to Edwards here. Edwards is saying, is God glorious? God's glorious. So then he, secondly, he says, God's works extend his perfect qualities so that his works are excellent in themselves. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at the moon on Saturday before worship, right? Did you see the moon last night? When I consider the works of your hands, what does he say? Marvelous, majestic, and incredible. Now here's what Edwards is saying. God in himself is glorious, so everything that God makes reveals the excellent glory of God. And then he says, the expression of God's perfect qualities in his work are to be seen and known by other beings who obtain knowledge of these qualities. So God is glorious, and God could enjoy the glory of all that He's made and created by Himself as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but He's created it for what reason? So you and I might delight in the glory of God. He is revealing Himself. 
He's displaying His glory. That's why He made us. And He says, finally, this knowledge is excellent in and itself. So it follows that it is an excellent thing in itself for a society of created beings to know God and His works. So here's what He's saying. God's intention is to create a humanity who finds its greatest joy in beholding His excellencies in all that He is. And God has purposed and blessed Adam and Eve and declared from beginning end in the Bible that He will be glorified in all that He does and all that, is, all that He has made. You and I need that. We need that. The end of the story in Revelation begins in the blessing of humanity in Genesis chapter 1. That's what He's saying there. And it drives mission all the way through. All the way through. And so you'll see Paul in Colossians, and he's been preaching through Colossians 1. Paul in Colossians 1 says that what God is going to do is make Christ all things through Christ, created and redeemed all things through Christ, so that everything is summed up in Christ, so that when we stand before God, what will we rejoice in? In creation and redemption and in His return. In the new creation, what will we rejoice in? Christ! And guess what? Christ is in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory the hope of glory christian the sorrow has not the last say the savior does the story is not the now the story is the mega meta narrative story he will make all things new he will that's how this depressing genesis 5 begins it begins not with man and his misery, but God and his glory. See it? So that's the starting point. You've got to know God's vision. And then in this text, you see this text in light of God's sovereign determination. Do you see that here in this chapter? What's happening is humanity is dying Humanity is in darkness. Humanity is aching. You get to the end of Genesis 5 and they're going, oh God, thank you for Noah. When Noah is born. But as you see what happens in the brokenness of humanity is the unbroken purpose of God. Because what's happening is there is a son named Seth. And Seth has a son. And then Seth's son has a son. And Seth's son son has a son and his son 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 he has a son so it's a real sunny chapter after all okay all right but the reality is that the sons that are born and dying most of them born and dying these sons are leading to his son and every name you can analyze every name in this all of these names, however you choose names, however they decided to choose the names for these sons, all these names point to Jesus. You walk through, Adam is called man, Seth is called appointed. The New Testament tells that Christ was appointed for our salvation. Enosh is born to Seth and his name is mortal. And Christ took on our mortality, our humanity, Kenan's name is Sorrow. Can you feel? Imagine naming your kids Sorrow. Thanks, Dad. It's like, isn't Johnny Cash a boy named Sue? 
Call him Sue so he fights his way all the way through life. Call him Sorrow that maybe he might be happy. I don't know, right? But you can sense that these guys lived a long time. But, but Christ was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a great high priest. You know, the people around you can't feel your pain like Jesus feels your pain. That's the shepherd we have. Mahalalel is called blessed of God. Jared means to come, on, come down. You shall come down. Jesus came down. Though he was exalted and equal with God, he did not see his equality with God as something to grasp, but he humbled himself and he took on human form and became a man. Enoch probably means teaching. And so they called him rabbi, good teacher. Jesus said, I am the way, not just the teaching. He who taught with authority, he is the truth. He teaches who he is. He is the truth by which all things are interpreted. There is no hope for humanity unless Jesus exists and is who he claims to be. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Isn't that a great name too? But his, breath, his death shall bring life. It's in his dying we're living and Lamech means weeping or despairing. You see this as it unfolds all the way down. And Jesus weep, weeps in the garden for us. And in his weeping, in his, in his groaning, and in his agony, he brings Noah. You know, Noah comes in, and Noah is our, our comfort, our rest. Isn't that great at the end? You see, you see what's going on in this text as we read it? Nothing's random. Name, we, we may... We may like names because they're cute or cool or hip or whatever or old-fashioned or new-fashioned or whatever, but they didn't throw names around carelessly. And what we're told is when they were intentionally giving their names, often out of their pain and sorrow, they were preparing us for the man of sorrows acquainted with grief who would deliver us and comfort us once and for all. You see, in this line is a sovereign God preparing us for the Son of God to deliver us. And so you and I need to read this and we need to come back and realize that if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with us, with him freely give us all things? That's the argument of the Bible that God is zealous for his good works. God is determined. Nothing has stopped God from doing what God has planned to do. You stop and think, oh, this is a hard place. It's a hard place for us. It's not a, there's no stop sign for God in the establishing of his kingdom. He will build his church. And he will establish his son. And no one who dares, not the demagogues of China and North Korea will stop the kingdom of God. Not the corruption and pollution of Hollywood and Vegas in America will stop the God who will raise a people through the power of His Son who will reign forever and ever with Jesus. So, you know, when I was a kid, and just, just I always want you young men and young women to realize that God can get a hold of your heart when you are young. When I was young, one of my favorite texts of Scripture is Isaiah 46. Why don't you go there? Because you need a bigger God. You need a glorious God. I need a bigger God when you can jump in here, but listen to how God talks about his relationship with Israel in verse 
3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, Isaiah 46, 3. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from when? From before your birth. Isn't that a great text? Carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. Isn't that good news, folks? You don't have to carry yourself. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship him? Are you kidding me? They lift it up on their shoulders. They carry it. All religions have to carry their God, but our God carries us. If At the end of that verse 7, if one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things yet to come, saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken it, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. I love that. It's like when we were going to talk to Ron Gentilizo this morning and hear from Ron. I love that because God will say, Ron Gentilizo, I want you to walk the streets of Kabul. And it's not Ron Gentilizo coming up with a brilliant idea. God will send people from China to Minneapolis to preach the gospel and from Minneapolis to Afghanistan. If it pleases him, I will do it. Do you believe that? Will one of his promises fail? Are you more zealous than God? Is the devil more zealous than God? Oh, we got a lot of zealous zealots out there, but nobody is as zealous for his purpose as our God. That was great for me to learn as a teenager because I got on the ride with a God who would not stop. And I'm saying, I'm follow you to the ends of the earth if that's where you call me to go because I can't trust anyone else to accomplish what they say they're going to accomplish. But you will not fail. That's the whole of the Bible. That's the argument of Scripture. And so that is um, powerful in this text of Scripture that God will bring salvation through His Son. Let me give you two more quick thoughts out of this. We have God's transformation. The, the shining light in this text is who? It's not accidental. You're meant to stop, trip, stumble, think over Enoch. Because everybody dies except for Enoch. Now in Jewish literature, Enoch stands out. Multiple extra-biblical literature, people come back to Enoch, and he stands out, he's got a reputation in extra-biblical literature with the language, he is the one who, they actually call him sometimes the one who repented. And what we're meant to see in this is that God can take any man he chooses and radically transform his life for God's purpose. 
That's what's being hit. The power of God. Now, that's helpful to us because what keeps me from going in and following God is I'm thinking I'm not up to it. It's not up about what I'm up to. It's about what God can do through me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when I'm going to face the giants in the land, I don't need to fear the giants in the land because God can do whatever he wants to do with whatever he wants to. Isn't that true of the Saul of Tarsus when the people were trembling in the book of Acts? God just says, Saul, just want to change you. You're in the job of killing the Christians and bringing it to an end. I'm just going to... You are 180-ing and you are going to fight the good fight. And you who caused the suffering for those who are in the gospel will now suffer for the sake of my son. Isn't that glorious? And so in the Bible and in Scripture, we have these descriptions. It says, Enoch walked with God. In all of this darkness, here's a, here's a man who walked with God. Noah is described like this in chapter uh, 6 as well. He walked with God. And the question is, what do we know about Enoch? What does it mean to walk with God? Well, one of the things that's really clear in this passage of Scripture is that in, 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 in extra literature and then in Hebrews when it talks about him is that Enoch once didn't walk with God, it seems. Look at Genesis um, chapter 5. Look at this text in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God when? after he fathered Methuselah. So here's where the thinking is gone. You can do with it what you want. Well, what the thinking was is when Methuselah was born, Enoch had a life change. Any of you had a life change when your kids were born? It was okay to be a bonehead on your own. But now you're a bonehead who's responsible for somebody else's life. I'm not sure what happened here. All we know, and Hebrews 11 tells us that he was a man of repentance. And what do we mean by repentance? It's not simply he changed his behavior. He changed the treasure of his life. He believed in God, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, and that God was the rewarder of those who what? Seek him. Repentance, biblical repentance, is not me trying not to do naughty things anymore, not swearing anymore, quitting all my bad habits, all that. That's not repentance. Repentance is giving up my idols and worshiping the only true God. That He is the one who rewards those who seek Him. And so that's what repentance is. It's not a change in behavior, it's a change in worship. That's what God did with Him. Suddenly, all the things that mattered to Him didn't matter to Him anymore. They mattered. They were all put in their place under God, the rewarder of those who sought him, he began to seek God. Have you begun to seek God? That's what God seeks. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Young people, what are you doing? Are you seeking God? Are you trusting in God? Are you worshiping God? Are you loving, in God? loving God? Are you delighting in God? That's what the gospel does in Jesus Christ. It makes you a worshiper. That's the whole story in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She was worshiping other things. She was chasing love in all the wrong places, in and out of relationships, finally giving up on marriage, just living with a guy. And Jesus comes along and calls her to a new life, tells her about her life. And she begins to worship and delight in Jesus. That's what walking with God is. Walking with God is that he's my treasure. He's not just 
the genie to help me get through my hard times and to get me the good things I want in life. He's the good thing I want in life. It's responsiveness. In the Bible, walking with God, I think this is really important. I want some of you to think about this. don't know who it is. I want you to pray about this. But in Genesis chapter 5, we're told to walk, or Galatians chapter 5, we're told to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Keep in step with the Spirit. Walking with God is living your life tuned in to what God wants. Praying, studying the Word, listening, believing in the kingdom of God, expecting. So when, when I walk into that dark situation, whether it's work, whether it's school, whether it's home, whether it's my job, when I walk in there, I'm not listening to all the chatter of all my friends and peers and co-workers, everything is saying, I'm tuning the dial of my radio into God. What would you have me say? Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? I get up in the morning and I pray, tune me in to you, O God. That's what it means to walk with God. To walk with God is to listen to God, to lean on God, to learn from God. Isn't that great news? You don't have to solve any problem in your life. You just have to follow Him. Walking is listening, responding, and following God. It's a beautiful way to live. It takes all the weight off your shoulder, right? Jesus says to those of you who are weary and in need of rest, what should you do? Come to him and take your, his yoke upon you and learn from him. Abide in Jesus and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from him, you'll just burn out. Finally, reverence. Can you take your Bible and turn to Jude? Just because you don't get asked to do that very often. I can say Jude chapter 1 if you want, but that's all there is. But if you go into um, Jude chapter 1, we, we encounter Enoch. Jude 14, verse 14. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam. That was an interesting thing. When I was reading Kylan Delich's commentary on this text, which is an old, old commentary, they said something about under Cain, in the last chapter, Lamech, who, you know, remember, shook, shook his fist and said, you know, Cain is avenged seven times, I'll avenge God. He was so defiant against God. He was so hardened to God. He thought he was God. You know, in Kylan Delich, they said, under uh, Adam, through Cain, uh, Lamech was the seventh son of Adam, but under Seth, Enoch. So one of them is a blasphemer and a mocker, and Enoch is a preacher and a prophet. So this is what he said. And I, th and I thought to myself, okay, you know, sometimes you want to make numbers become something. And then I went and read this, and then he goes, oh, this actually says he's the seventh son. So maybe there's more to it. <laughs> Than I thought. So it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness and they have, that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that these ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You get a real clear sense when you read that verse what it was like for Enoch to walk with God. Did he walk with God in a, in a crowd of God approvers? 
Look at what, how they're described after that. He says in verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are lamics. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. He's walking around in a world that is perverse, manipulative, corrupt, mocking God, argumentative against God. And he's saying all of this, and he's, he's going out of reverence. God is coming again to deal with the wicked. To walk with God was to feel the holiness of God in an unholy world. To feel the justice of God in an unjust world. To, to carry the weight of God in a world that is about to experience the wrath of God. To walk with God is not easy. To feel what God feels is not easy. To speak what God calls you to speak is not easy except for God. That's what he was doing. That's what we have. And so what we know about this is this is the hope for us. God can choose any man and take him out of a wicked world and put him on the path of prophecy. <laughs> put, him, put him as an instrument of God. He can do that with you. I preach every Sunday believing that God will take some of you and make you powerful in the hands of God. And it might be the worst of the bunch here, whoever that is. Right now, you didn't want to come today. You didn't want to worship God today. You can't believe I can preach this long on a sermon that's so depressing. Guess what? I can go longer. I'm cutting it short. I'm going to wrap it up here. But you understand, he can take you and make you a lover of God and a worshiper of God and a singer of God to stand amidst the people, of God, people that are lost and feel the pain and say, get ready, get ready, he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to make it all new. He'll separate the sheep and the goats. He'll deal with those who will not bow the knee. Every knee will bow. You will bow whether you want to bow or not. You might shake your fist, but Jesus is Lord. A day is coming, and it's coming soon. And so that's the last part of this text. And let me just kind of wrap it up with a real quick statement. You need to understand God's compassion. Because in all of this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of long years of agony, God sends Noah. And when Noah's born, somehow his father knows God's coming to deal with all this misery. Now he deals with it. Doesn't he? He deals with it. But we need to stop and realize that he calls Noah comfort because thank God he doesn't leave the world because if God did not come to end sin and death and unrighteousness, then this is hell. He's restraining with common grace. He's letting us see good things. But my dear friends, then if God did not deliver us and come and save us, then it would not be compassion. And you know why God hasn't come yet? Do you know why God hasn't? I was going to take you. You can do this on your own. Read 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 3, the only explanation why Christ hasn't returned is the patience and compassion of God. He waited today for you to get right with Him. One day He's going to make it all new. 
The Bible tells us that his goal is to make it new from sea to sea. As far as the curse is found, he will take away sin. He will take away death. I will not get the calls that I get every single week. The weight and the worry and the hardness and the difficulty He will take it all away. And the great announcement of Jesus coming into the world is the greatest news ever. The promised one has come. Noah was great, but Noah was a foreshadow of the true Noah who would come into the world. And he would take and deliver people from sin and sickness and Satan and death. And one day he's coming again and he'll make it all new. Are you ready for him to come again? You will bow the knee. It'll either be in defiance at the end or faith now. But the only explanation why he's waited thousands of years in Genesis 5 and millenniums since Genesis 5 is because God is merciful and does not delight that any perish. That's what 2 Peter teaches. You don't have to die. You don't have to go under the wrath of God. He will make all things new. You know the greatest news in the world is? If you confess your sins today and trust in him, He will forgive you for everything you've done and deliver you in His Son. Isn't that great news of the gospel? So, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I I chose joy to the world to be the closing hymn. I didn't know we were getting a snowstorm today. And I wanted us to sing joy to the world today because that's what Genesis 5 is about. That as far as the curse is found... He's going to make it all new. This is the greatest news in the world that God has not given up to us. As dark as it gets, as as stubborn as we are, God hasn't given up on us. Joy to the world was not written so that we could sing it only at Christmas time. Joy to the world is Christ has come and he will deliver and make all things new. And so God just thought snow would be a nice effect to have on Sunday when we sing it. But sing it like you believe it today. Would you sing it like you believe it? Friends, the shadows will soon part. The clouds will open and Christ will come. And when the Christ comes in glory, it will be glory indeed. Can I ask the worship team to come up? And um, There's sheets there if you need prayer, if you, need, if you want to come to Christ. Um, we're going to have a baptism soon. Um, so if you want to be baptized as a sign of your commitment to Christ, fill that out. Anything you need that we can serve, you can give. But let's just pray. Let's bow our heads. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you today. Oh, dear God, thank you that sometimes all we can feel is death and darkness and defeat. We feel like Noah's Father who goes, oh, finally, finally someone who comes to comfort us. And Noah was ushering a day, sort of a new start, where you dealt with all wickedness. You took one family and you started again. But dear God, you will come again and deal with all rebels, all stubbornness and all wickedness. You'll remove it. You'll remove sin and death and tears. And dear God, on that glorious day, come Jesus. On that glorious day, it'll be the new start that'll make everything new forever. So, Father, take away our discouragement.
You have said it. You will do it. Help us to align ourselves. Help us not to look at the giants that are in front of us, but the God who is over it all. Make us a courageous, joyful people, full of hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that the Lord rules and that he reigns and he'll make all things new? So let me pray for you. And I'm not, my sermon was not to say it's easy. It's actually to acknowledge it's hard, but to know there's hope. And that we would hold hard to that hope and that God would sustain us and empower us as we go. So let me pray and then afterwards you can go get refreshments if I want. And if anybody wants to chat and do some application, about 10, 15 minutes we'll be back up here to chat and answer any questions you have. So let's pray together. So Father, as we um, have worshipped you today, I pray, dear God, that we would worship you leaving this place. That this hope of a God who is unrelenting in his purpose and promises, that we would delight in him and see his glory in the face of his son, be saved and transformed, that that God would show us Jesus tomorrow morning when we get up. Show us Jesus on Tuesday when we go to work or go to school. Show us Wednesday, dear God. Fill us with the hope of Jesus. And then give us opportunity to tell people why the bad news of the world has not got the final say over us, but we are filled with hope. Help us to share the hope that we have forever because Christ reigns forever. So bless us and accept our praise and our adoration. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Have a great day today in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.